good to be in the house of the Lord with you. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, it is uh, important as Christians that we be in church every week. Uh, God set aside one day out of seven. And uh, our church attendance should be part of our rhythm of life as Christians. It's one of the things, by the way, that will set you apart from the world. Okay, they'll see this strange person. Oh, what's he doing on Sunday morning? Oh, he goes to church. Okay, it's a way of being known in the world uh, and and bearing witness to Christ. So thank you for being here this morning. We're actually continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts this morning, but I'm going to be doing that uh, by reading a passage that's not in Acts. So let me read the passage and then we'll try to explain that to you. Uh, The passage is, what is it? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You'll find that in your bulletins. Hear the word of God. Then the Spirit led Jesus into the desert. Jesus was taken there to be tempted by the devil. Jesus ate nothing for 40 days and nights. After this, he was very hungry. The devil came to tempt him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these rocks to become bread. Jesus answered him, the scriptures say it is not by it is not just bread that keeps people alive. Their lives depend on what God says. Then the devil led Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem and put him on a high place at the edge of the temple area. He said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, jump off, because the scriptures say God will command his angels to help you, and their hands will catch you, so that you will not hit your foot on a rock. Jesus answered, The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Then the devil led Jesus to the top of a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and all the wonderful things in them. The devil said, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all these things. Jesus said to him, get away from me, Satan. The scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God, serve only him. So the devil left him. Then some angels came to Jesus and helped him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, it is by your word that we have life, and we pray that you would breathe your life into uh, this sermon this morning. I pray that um, the proclamation of your word um, might truly become the word of God for us this day. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here two weeks ago, uh, the service was a little bit different. In the in both services, we had a time of testimonies. And in the early service, we had so many testimonies, we had no time for uh, for preaching. I mean, well, we did have preaching, but you all preached rather than me preaching, which is the way it's supposed to be every once in a while. In the second service, uh, we had fewer testimonies, and so I had time for kind of a... Uh, uh, an abbreviated sermon, uh, but I wanted to circle back to uh, the topic that I was hoping to address two weeks ago, and that topic was raised uh, by a single line in our reading from Acts chapter 23. That line reads this way, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay, so this is, there's a trial going on and Paul's, uh, uh, Paul is before, uh, a group of, of Jewish religious leaders, um, and 
Paul is exploiting um, a theological difference within the community of Jews at the time. The, the Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee, and many Pharisees did become followers of Jesus, they believed that, that there was going to be a resurrection. Okay, so the idea of the resurrection doesn't begin with Jesus. It's actually an earlier Jewish idea. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Pharisees also believed that there were angels. And the Pharisees believed in spirits. Okay, so these are all kind of supernatural things. Resurrections and spirits and angels. And the Pharisees were on board with this stuff. The Sadducees, however, were not. Now, the Sadducees were important uh, leaders in the community. Uh, they were uh, socially elite. Uh, they ran most things uh, in in Jewish society at that time, with the exception of the army. Okay, so they ran the temple and they ran the treasury. Uh, they were important people, and they were very religious. Okay. Uh, but they didn't believe in these supernatural things. So they were religious, but not supernatural. The Pharisees were religious, but supernatural. Okay, And so I wanted to talk about this because I do think it's an important issue. One of the things that's happened in uh, the Western world, in Western Christianity, in the last hundred years, is, is that much of the Western church has lost its grip on the supernatural. I think it's one of the reasons that we left the PCUSA, that there was a loss of a sense of the supernatural in the in the PCUSA. All right. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is is that when Scripture talks about miracles, we believe that those miracles really happen. When the Scriptures talk about heaven and hell, we believe that there really is a heaven and hell, and that these aren't just uh, you know theoretical abstractions. When the when the Scriptures talk about resurrection, we believe that dead bodies come up out of the ground. When the Scriptures talk about angels, we believe that there really are angels. All right. So there are people who describe themselves as Christians, uh, but find it impossible to believe in those supernatural things. They have a kind of despirited religious practice, all right? And so their faith becomes a faith of this world. It becomes a faith of good works, of being a good person, of, you know, of regular uh, religious observance, but it's not plugged into a spiritual reality that scripture talks about Really, from the beginning to the end of Scripture. All right. So, some of you uh, are old enough to remember Bishop Robinson. Uh, I guess at that time he was not the. Well, he was a, an Anglican bishop. I think he might have been the the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, wrote a book in 1963. Published a book in 1963 called "Honest to God." And this book was a New York Times bestseller, and it is a popularization of a lot of the more academic theology that had been going on in the early part of the 20th century. A lot of liberal Christian academic theology in the first part of the 20th century was an attempt to wrestle with the problem that scriptures are saying these things about supernatural stuff, but you know, I'm modern and scientific and I can't possibly believe that. And how do I continue to call myself a Christian, but walk away from the idea that dead men come back to life? How can I continue to call myself a Christian, but uh, uh, no longer believe in, in healing by prayer or by faith? 
Okay, And so there, there was a movement within the mainline church, within the liberal wing of the mainline church, to, uh, to, as they call it, to demythologize scripture. How can I be a Christian without these things that are contrary to, to scientific thinking? Or how can I be a Christian without the supernatural element? The first thing I want to point out about this is that this is not a modern problem. Okay, it's not a modern problem now, and, and I puzzle about this because I think there's a psychological root to this. Because here we see in the first century there were observant Jews, faithful Jews, Bible reading Jews who didn't believe the supernatural stuff. Okay, so it isn't that they had all of a sudden discovered modern science and then had to walk away from angels. It isn't that they all of a sudden discovered modern science and couldn't believe in resurrections. There's something m- deeper than that. There's a heart issue actually involved in the denial of what Scripture says about supernatural things. And so that's sort of what I want to talk about, uh, and I'm hoping I can get through some of this stuff. So what I want to do first is I want to briefly talk about uh, the two passages that we read uh, I think both of these passages are familiar to you. The story of, Eli- uh, of Elisha and the chariots of fire. Uh, and then the New Testament story of the temptation of Jesus. And I want to talk briefly about what these two passages tell us about angels. And then I want to, uh, with the time that's left, go through and uh, offer some pointers on what Scripture does teach on angels in a more systematic way. So if you want to pull out your bulletins that have been so firmly recommended to you. In fact, in fact, we're not going to allow you to leave the sanctuary today if you don't have your bulletin with you. I'm going to be at the door uh, checking everyone. It's going to be your exit ticket, okay? If you, if anyone doesn't have a bulletin, they can also pick it up back there, but Jordan is, is watching over them, okay? All right, so let's talk about the, the story of the king of Aram. So the king of Aram is an enemy uh, of the people of God, and and uh, Elisha is is you know uh, giving warnings to the people of God to protect them from the wiles of the king of Aram. And so the king of Aram sends an army to besiege the city of Dothan. Elisha and his his young assistant are in the city of Dothan. The king sends a whole army, and they're totally around the city. And then in verse 16, well, and then and then in the morning, the servant wakes up and he looks out and he's petrified. There's a whole army out there. There's no way we can escape. And he says to his master, Elisha, oh, master, what can we do? And here's where I, what I want you to observe. Uh, let's begin in verse 16. Elisha said, don't be afraid. The army that fights for us is larger than the army that fights for Aram. First of all, I I just want to offer this as a really fundamental biblical principle. In every single circumstance that you face as the people of God, the army that fights for you is larger than the army that fights for the world. Okay, Every single circumstance. If you feel beset and besieged by, oh, you know, the society or, or the circumstances of your life, the army that's fighting for you is larger than the army that's fighting for the world. Don't be afraid. The army that fights for us is larger than the army that fights for Aram. The servant boy can see the army of Aram. Okay? Horses, mounted men, uh, 
you know, they're on the ridge all around. We can see them because they're natural soldiers. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I ask you, open my servant's eyes so that he can see. The servant can see the natural. Not everyone can see the supernatural. The supernatural's there, but the servant can't see it. Is the servant an unfaithful person? No. He works for the prophet. He's a good lad. He's been raised in, 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 in an environment that's drenched with scripture. But he doesn't have this gift of seeing the supernatural. Okay? And so Elisha prays for him. Lord, I ask you, open my servant's eyes so that he can see what? Well, to see something that's beyond the natural. And then in the, in the continuing part of that verse, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and the servants saw the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire. They were all around Elisha. All right. A couple of things I want to point out about this is that one is, is that the, the natural and the supernatural are in the same place. Okay, it's not like the natural is here and the supernatural is off someplace, you know, in an, uh, uh, you know, in heaven. The supernatural is there in Dothan. It's around Dothan. The army of Aram is around Dothan too, but the supernatural army is also around Dothan. The supernatural and the natural are in the same place. They are next to each other's. Aram's army and the Lord's army are on the same mountains. All right? This is different than, you know, talking about the armies of the Lord, you know, as being some kind of you know, spiritual something. They're actually there. The angels are actually in a place. They're around Dothan. They're not over, you know, in Athens. They're at Dothan. And they're simultaneously present. It requires a special ability to see this, but there it is. Okay, this is a couple of lessons there. Now let's go to the temptation of Jesus. Now the long version of this sermon, uh, which we may need to extend to next week, also talks about fallen angels. Well, <clears throat> because we need to talk about fallen angels. Because fallen angels are as real as unfallen angels. Um, but we do get some, we get some discussion about fallen angels here, uh, in the temptation of Jesus story. So you all know this story. Verse four, the spirit led Jesus into the desert. He was taken there to be tempted by the devil. Now, I hope that that verse surprises you. Satan doesn't take Jesus to the desert to tempt him? Who takes Jesus to the desert to tempt him? To have him be tempted? The Spirit does. Okay? One part of the Trinity sends another part of the Trinity into the desert. Why? 
to be tempted by the devil. Now that might be surprising to you. That Almighty God put his son into the position to be tempted by the devil. But scripture is crystal clear on that. The spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness in order that he might be tempted by the devil. Now, maybe you think, well, that doesn't make any sense, you know, because God and the devil are not on the same team. Aren't they like, you know, kind of like opposites? Why would the, why would God be cooperating in any way with the devil? A couple things I want to say about that. One is I want to remind you of the book of Job, and you remember the, the, the preface to the book of Job, where there's a conversation in heaven going on between God and the accuser or Satan. One of the names for the devil is the accuser, Satan. This is what he does. That's his job. His job is to accuse you of stuff. All right. So that's the first thing I want to point point to you. It's a similar situation where there is a conversation between God and Satan regarding certain things. We see it in Job. We see it here in Matthew chapter 4. The second thing I would like to point out to you is something very insightful that Luther said. Luther by the way, who was very conscious of the work of the devil in this world, Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. Think about that. Even the devil is God's devil. Who made the devil? Almighty God. Who allows the devil to continue to exist? Almighty God. If God decided there was no devil the devil will be gone instantaneously, okay? So the devil is part of God's created order. It's part of God's plan for his own glory. Even the devil uh, is God's devil. And then the third thing I would want to point out is just a few of the names of the devil. The deceiver, the accuser, and the father of lies. Even when you put scripture into the mouth of the devil, and you notice in this passage he's quoting, the the devil's quoting scripture. Even when you put scripture into the mouth of the devil, it becomes a lie, okay? Because he twists it and he uses it for some other purpose, all right? Some of you have heard the voice of the devil. You've heard the voice of the accuser accusing you, okay? I want to warn you about that. There's a difference between being convicted of sin, which the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so that we might change and be sanctified, as opposed to the devil who accuses us of sin so that we're crippled and unable to move and self-loathing. All right? There's a difference. Holy Spirit will point out your sin to you so that you can repent of it And change, the devil will point out your sin to you just so that it kills you and makes you feel miserable. Okay? Two two different ways. Even even when you put scripture in the mouth of the devil, uh, uh, it's a lie. Okay? Now, you'll notice that there's there's this interaction between Jesus and the devil and there's there's kind of a a dueling scripture contest here. Uh, You know, Jesus, of course, gets the last word. Uh, in verse 11, we read, so the devil left him. You probably uh, remember James 4, 17, which uh, says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
All right. I mean, the devil's powerful, uh, but the devil never sticks around unless you invite him to stick around. And if you tell him to go, he, he goes. He just, he has to go. All right. So if you don't want the devil around, you just tell him to go away. It's time for you to leave now. Goodbye. See you. Done. Get out of here. And then at the last part of verse 11, then some angels came to Jesus and helped him. Now that might seem odd to you because, you know, after all, Jesus is the son of God. He is God. Why would he need angels to help him? I mean, remember, he's been uh, 40 days out there in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's weak. Uh, He's had this uh, uh, intellectual or spiritual struggle uh, with the devil. Um, and, and in the end, God sends him angels. Now, what we're going to see as we, we get a little further into this is that one of the jobs of angels is to minister to you, to like take care of you, All right? They, they protect you and they take care of you. That's, that's their job. They've been, they've been created for this. All right. And so Jesus, Jesus, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, but Jesus is also a man. Jesus laid down some of the privileges of his Godhead in order to be incarnate. And he's a man. And in his humanity, he needs the ministry of an angel. All right. He needs the help of an angel. All right. And so angels even minister to to Jesus. I also want to read to you Hebrews chapter 4, um, verses 14 through 16. If you're wondering about why it is that, you know, God would talk with the devil and have Jesus taken off into the wilderness to be tempted, it seems like a crazy thing to do. Uh, listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 14. I'm, I'm beginning at verse Hebrews chapter 4, I'm beginning at verse 14. We have a great high priest who has gone to live with God in heaven. He is Jesus, the Son of God. So let us continue to express our faith in him. Jesus, our high priest, is able to understand our weaknesses. When Jesus lived on earth, he was tempted in every way. He was tempted in the same ways we are tempted, but he never sinned. With Jesus as our high priest, we can feel free to come before God's throne where there is grace. There we receive mercy and kindness to help us when we need it. Part of Jesus' job is to be our mediator and our advocate before God the Father. And part of his ability to do that is having lived a human life. So Jesus was tempted with the same sins that you're tempted with. So he understands the psychology of human temptation. Now, he also didn't yield to any of those temptations, but he gets it. He gets what it feels like to be tempted to do something that you know is wrong. All right, And it's his having had that experience which allows him to sympathize with us in a way that he wouldn't be able to sympathize with us if he hadn't had that experience. So by allowing Jesus to go out into the wilderness and to be tempted by the devil, as opposed to, you know, keeping Jesus, you know, in a safe little cage where the devil can't get at him, 
God the Father actually allowed Jesus to be a better Savior of us. Okay, to be one who can sympathize with us. So that's that's the reason uh, behind that temptation. Okay, so there are a couple of lessons in there uh, about uh, about the about the angels. Um, let me march through this. I am watching that time. I realize we're going to run out of time, but let me march through some of these things. Um, let me talk about the existence of angels to begin with. Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, simply assumes that there are angels. It never tries to prove it. All right, you can't read any of these books. Well, more than half of the books in the Bible explicitly mention angels, but they all assume that there are angels. There are some things that need to be proven, and there are other things which you simply take for granted. The Bible simply takes the the existence of angels for granted. Jesus himself teaches about angels. You probably remember uh, that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Peter cuts off the ear of the person who's uh, you know who's come to uh, arrest Jesus, and uh, and Jesus rebukes Peter and says to him. Do you think that I couldn't call on my father and he would put at once at my disposal 12,000 angels? Okay. So Jesus believes in angels. The Bible from beginning to end assumes there are angels. And so we as Christians, if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, must also believe in angels. If we believe that Jesus is not a liar or an idiot, we also must believe in angels. Okay, So the existence of angels is simply assumed. Let's talk about the nature of angels. So the first thing to know about angels is that they're created. They're creatures, just like you are. Okay, God made porpoises, and he made turtles, and he made people, and he made moons, and he made angels. It's just part of the stuff of the universe uh, that he created. Um, there's some debate about when he created the angels. Uh, some say that uh, one theory is that they were created during the six days. Uh, Exodus 20:11 says, "In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them." which would suggest that the angels were created as a part of all of that stuff that was made in those six days. But then in the book of Job, uh, this is Job 38, 7, it seems to suggest that the angels were already made before uh, the Genesis creation is talked about. There we read, On what were the earth's foundations set, or who laid its cornerstones, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Okay, so that in that little poem that's part of the book of Job, it visualizes the angels witnessing God creating uh, our universe. So uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't have a definite opinion on when it is that the angels were created. Uh, what is clear, however, is that they are created. Okay, they're, they're not gods. They're simply things that have been made. So number one, they're created. The second thing, uh, sometimes you, you've heard the as as a, a kind of a lampooning of, of theology, uh, 
arguments about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. This is actually a real question, by the way, uh, and it was really debated uh, in the medieval church. Uh, and it gets at an issue which is a little bit strange about angels, namely that angels don't take up any space, but they are located. Okay, They are somewhere, but they don't fill the somewhere. Okay, So matter is in space and time. Uh, matter fills up space, which is why you cannot sit in the same spot in the pew that someone else is sitting in. Okay, because you have bodies and the two bodies can't fit in the same spot. But angels don't have that problem. Uh, angels uh, are someplace, but they don't seem to fill the space, which we get from the fact that individuals can have many angels in them or demons in them, fallen angels. So uh, when the demons uh, uh, are in the uh, in the uh, in the Gadarene uh Man, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, um, there are like a lot of demons in him. He's, obviously, they're able to fit in there, but they're in him. Because when Jesus casts them out, you remember where he casts them? He casts them out into a herd of swine, and now they're in the herd of swine. In other words, if they're in the swine, they're not in the man. And if they're in the man, they're not in the swine. Or, to put it another way... The demon can't be in two places at the same time. Alright? So there's some place, but they don't fill up the place. It's a little strange. It reminds me of, if you've ever been to one of those 4th of July parades and the Shriners come along with a little car and the clowns keep coming out of the car. Okay? You get a lot of clowns in that one little car. All right, I think the I think the demons and the angels are like that. They're somewhere. They're in the car, but they don't seem to fill up the car. All right, how many angels are there? A lot. All right, a lot. Hundreds of millions, billions. There are a lot of angels. The numbers that are used in Revelation are in the order of hundreds of millions. Okay, uh, uh, angels are moral beings. By which I mean they are intelligent and have the power of choice. Uh, we know that the doctrine of election or salvation or damnation applies to angels. First Timothy 5.21 says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Okay, So angels can be either saved or damned too. All right, The way human beings are. Angels are strong and powerful, but they're not omnipotent. It's important to, to, to notice that. Uh, angels, however, while they're powerful, are actually below humans in terms of God's plan for his creation. Let me read you a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, 
searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that would follow. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke the things that are now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here's the important part. Even angels long to look into these things. In other words, there have been things that are revealed to you in the word of God that the angels wish, I wish someone would tell me about that. Okay? Angels are part of God's creation, but we humans, who are the only creatures made in God's image, are the pinnacle of creation. And so even the angels serve us, okay, according to God's will. The job of angels. Well, so all, everything that God has created, uh, has a job. Uh, broadly speaking, the, the job of everything is to, is to, is to serve God. Okay? People serve God. We were put into the garden to take care of God's garden. Angels also have, uh, jobs. Um, one of the jobs is similar to the job of humans, and that is to praise God. Uh, Psalm 148, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights above, praise him all his angels, praise him all his heavenly host. By the way, this word host is just an old-fashioned word for a lot. Sometimes you hear the Lord of hosts, that means the Lord of a lot. Okay, so one of the jobs of the angels is to praise God. Another job of the angel, and this is where we get the word angel, is to be a messenger from God to us. Okay, this is probably what we're most uh, familiar with, with, with angels being being messengers. So in the, in the Christmas story, there are all kinds of appearances of angels of God communicating with people uh, through, uh, through angels. In the Acts of the Apostles, uh, we have uh, the story of angels coming to... Um, Cornelius and angels coming to uh, Peter so that they can have a, an appointment between between them. Okay, so one of the jobs of angels is to communicate from God uh, to to people, but the main purpose of the angels is to minister to the church. And by minister, I mean to serve and to take care of the church. Uh, in the in the Revela- uh, not in the uh, uh, Stogie Society, we've been working our way through Hebrews, uh, through he- the letter of Hebrews, and and I was really captivated by this verse in Hebrews one fourteen, where we read, "Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those to serve those who will inherit salvation?" Okay, so in chapter one of of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews is trying to show how Christ is more important than the angels. And then at the end, uh, he says this, and I'm going to read it again. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Or to make it not a question, angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Who's going to inherit salvation? Well, that's us. That's the church. So scripture says that all angels are there to serve us, all right? Which is why we see in Luke 15, 10, uh, 
Jesus saying there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. All right? Because that's what they're there for. They're there to take care of the church. Uh, the angels also guard the elect or the church. Uh, I think this this was uh, from our uh, our call to worship this morning, Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. He, the angel, delivers them. All right? We don't see this going on, okay? And I guess if Elisha were here, he might be able to pray over us and open our eyes to see the ministering angels who are around us literally protecting us, okay? Hundreds of millions of angels God has created to minister to his church. That's you. All right, And so there are angels who protect you, who are guarding your flank. Okay, This isn't just some weird, airy-fairy idea. This is, this is supernatural reality. They guard the elect. Uh, Psalm 91, 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Okay, Again, uh, God speaking about angels. Uh, in Matthew 18... We read this. Be careful that you don't despise one of these little children. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of the Father in heaven. Okay? So there's even, so this is Jesus talking about how even children have angels who are guarding them and, and protecting them. The, Angels also help the church. You, uh, in, in Acts chapter 5, we had that great story of, of Peter, uh, being in jail and, and the angel coming and busting him out of jail every once in a while. Uh, sometimes the angels have to do, to do things like that. So, three main jobs of the angels. One is just to praise God. That's everybody's job, by the way. That's the job of trees. That's the job of you. That's the job of the ocean. It's the job of angels. Uh, the second is to be a messenger between us and God. Sometimes God sends a message by angels. But I think the main function of the angel is to protect us and to guard us and to minister to our needs, even in the way that the angels minister to the needs of Jesus uh, in the wilderness. All right, uh, I have run out of time, but let me talk about um, three ideas which are not true about angels. By the way, the world loves angels. The world might hate the Bible, but the world loves angels. There are lots of pagan people very fascinated by angels. I was up in Vermont yesterday, and I went to the town of Bennington, and there was a big sign uh, 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 at, at the uh, tarot card reader. They now have also not only tarot cards, they have angel cards, and they'll do angel card readings for you. Okay, you know, a non-believer, someone who's on the highway to hell, but they, they like angels. Uh, three things I want to say about angels. Number one is your grandfather who passed away is not an angel in heaven looking down on you. Okay? I hear this too much. Right? When somebody dies, they don't become an angel. When somebody dies, they don't get their wings. All right. When somebody dies, they are a dead human, and they are in the presence of God, and one day their body will be resurrected. But 
but you don't become an angel any more than you become a dolphin. Okay, angels and humans are different kinds of creatures. All right, so your dead grandfather is not an angel. Secondly, this one you see all of the time in Far Side cartoons. Hell does not belong to the devil. Okay, hell belongs to God, and it's a jail for the devil. All right, he, the devil doesn't rule hell. He's bound in a chain in hell, all right? Well, he will be at the end of time. Right now he's running loose, all right? But hell does not belong to the devil. Some people like to think of, you know, heaven as being the kingdom of God and hell being the kingdom of Satan. No, hell belongs to God too. Okay, God created hell and he created it for the, for, the, for Satan and and his angels. Thirdly, God and the devil are not the light and the dark side of the force, all right? There is, there is Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Trek, Star Wars theology, you know, of the force, and there's a light side and a dark side. Okay, there was a version of this in Christianity, it was called Manichaean, Manichaeanism, okay, it's a heresy. The devil and God are not opposite and equal, okay, it's not a yin and a yang thing, okay, God creates everything. God is everything. God makes it all. He, even the devil is God's devil. All right? So the devil is just like a little bump on the log in God's larger creation. All right? Uh, so three things I want to say about that. Maybe we're going to have to talk about fallen angels next time, but I need to shut up. Okay, because John's going to be really irritated with me. Let's, uh... He's got a lot of good songs we're going to do. All right. Let's take a look at uh, our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 24. I will read the questions. You can respond. We can respond with the answers. Question 62. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best work in this life are imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and in the next? This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ through true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. All right, John.